Hi, I'm Wendy Murdoch, and this is Webinars with Wendy. I've been doing a series of webinars during the pandemic to entertain myself, visit with friends, meet new friends, and learn something. Um, this is a number 122. If anybody told me when I started doing these that I would have done 122 at this point, I would have said they were crazy. But that's where we are and hopefully at some point things will get better. But in the meantime, we'll just keep doing webinars and I have guests lined up all the way into December. We're gonna take a little break over the holiday, so just be sure to um, keep an eye on that. We'll send out the emails um, and let you know who our guests are. Today my guest is Alicia Harlove, right? Um, and she is the author of The Humble Hoof, which I just love the name, I think it's great. And your logo, I love your logo too. I almost used that for something. <laughs> Um, it's really great. So welcome, Alicia. Thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you so much for um, having me on. And as Wendy said, my name is Alicia. Um, I am a hoof care provider just north of Boston, Massachusetts. And my main focus is uh, barefoot rehab, but I also utilize boots and pads or composite glue-on shoes as needed, depending on the case. So Alicia, um, how did you get into this? Like, how did you get into hoof care in the first place? Yeah. Um, so funny story, and I'll try to make it as short as possible. Okay. I was a uh, public school music teacher. I have a master's degree in music education. I taught for about 10 years in the public school. And I had a horse that had uh, that was diagnosed with a navicular. And basically, I had, I had no idea what to do with him. And, and, you know, my amazing farriers, I don't want to say it was any fault of theirs, but you know, nothing was really helping him. Um, so I kind of got sent down this rabbit trail of, you, you know, uh, studying ways to help navicular issues. And that's how I actually uh, first learned about Dr. Bowker, who I know you've had on a few times, yep. um, Pete Ramey, Daisy Bicking. Um, I flew to a hoof rehab in England called Broccoli Farm. And eventually oh, with, with Nick. With yes, Nick. yes. Yeah, we've yeah. had her on twice. <laughs> yep, I love Nick. Um, yep, so I've been to her rehab in England, and then I helped um, coordinate a clinic for her in um, New York last year. So, um, and hopefully we'll see her next year, too. I think she's coming back to Denver, Colorado for oh, the- Oh, great. Yeah, conference. people loved her webinar. That yeah, she's, she's just so incredible. Um, and it got to the point where I was spending all my, I probably shouldn't admit this publicly, but I was spending all my prep periods at work in school um, studying hoof issues. And I didn't think that was fair to the students that I was teaching. Um, so I, I eventually left teaching and this is my full-time career now. Wow. So what instruments do you play? Um, I majored in orchestral percussion, <laughs> so uh, mallet instruments, but, you know, as a music ed major, I had to take lessons on basically every instrument in order to be certified to teach them. So um, right yeah, now- you concussion, you know, isn't that percussion? It's all about concussion. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Um, the funny thing is that percussion is a very like mathematical thing and hook care is not. So <laughs> it's definitely an adjustment but it's been fun. Okay. And so how long ago did you leave, leave the education system? Well, you're still in the education system, but leave the formal education system teaching to start doing this full time. So I've only been doing this full time for just over a year. Uh, but I have been for the last five years trimming. So I was teaching and then trimming, uh, after school and on weekends and driving myself crazy, uh, busy. 
And now I just, I actually have no idea how I managed to do that, teach and then trim. Um, you know, we, we find ways, don't we? We all find ways, like with, through, with the pandemic, we find ways to connect. So, um, and then when did you start that, like, did the Humble Hoof start, like, initially when, when you first left teaching, or how'd that come about? Because it's a great name. <laughs> oh, the actual business name or the podcast? The whole, both of them. <laughs> um... I, so the name, I bounce names around with my husband and uh, one of my really close friends for a while. And I wanted something that would encompass the fact that I really believe that the hoof is smart and that it's smarter than we are. And we can impose our ideas on it, but ultimately the horse and the hoof are going to have the final say in what works for it. Um, but I also didn't want to pigeonhole myself into, you know, just barefoot or um, just one way of doing things. And so I thought, you know, the humble hoof says, you know, that's, it's, you know, it's going to be teaching us things instead of us trying to, to force our own ideals on it. Yeah, it's a great name. And so when did you start doing the podcast? I started the podcast in, oh gosh, March of 2019. And it started with just one episode a month, uh, just because, you know, I didn't have time for much more. And it got picked up by Horse Radio Network a few months ago. So now I do two episodes a month, which is slightly overwhelming at times. Um, <laughs> just because I edit, I edit all the episodes. It can take me 10 to 20 hours of editing. Yeah, no, I, it is time consuming. And we had Glenn on, um, on the webinar because um, uh, on one of my shows, and he talked about uh, how how podcasts typically are not terribly successful if you look at the masses of podcasts that have been created. Um, and so it was interesting to talk to him about how he kind of scans and see whose podcasts are being successful and who's diligent and really sticking with it because really it's the consistency that's so required to make a good podcast. I mean, Penn's, Ken, um, Glenn, sorry, has been so, and we want to give a shout out to Glenn because we know he's got some health issues going on right now. And we're just sending him a lot of love. Yeah. So, um, yep. I'm sure he'll be back, but he's needing to take care of himself right now. So, um, yeah. so cool. So you started this podcast and, um, we had, apparently you have a lot of viewers or a lot of listeners, I was, I'm going to say, because when we put up the email for this webinar, it, uh, like things went nuts. I was like, wait a second. <laughs> funny it's funny because I don't you know the podcast episodes themselves aren't me they're whoever I interview um so that's cool that that I I do know the podcast right now gets around 8,000 to 10,000 downloads a month um and the the slight variation is usually just I think the topic and the guest that I have on but um well people seem to enjoy your interviewing process because they're saying you're the best so <laughs> You know, um, it's, you know, so much of this, uh, the online stuff, and I, I'm sure that you, you recognize this, you know, there's a lot of people that are using online right now, but a lot, I've tried to listen to other people's online stuff. And I just find that unless you're a bit of an entertainer and like me, I, I interrupt my guests all the time um, <laughs> and ask them questions, it can get, kind of get really flat. It can get, yeah. it can get really tough. For people to watch and so much is being driven online right now so um i will interrupt you ask you questions i'm actually going to run your slideshow so this is going to be really fun yes thank you i can say no i'm not going to go next to the next slide just yet all right are you ready to get into it uh yeah i think i'm good awesome okay so i'm going to do the screen share here uh, and that's not what you want to see it's this one no nope, that's not it either it's facebook where the heck did it go wait 
Oh, that's not it. Okay, wait, I got it. Why? Hang on a second. I'm going to stop my share for a second and figure out why that didn't work. Because it worked just fine a minute ago when we tested it out. Do, do, do. You know, that's, that's the joy of live. <laughs> <laughs> I have it too. I just don't know. Um... No, it just... Oh, I know what I did. Hang on, hang on. You you have to talk and entertain the crowd while I switch my account because it it does. I can't ever. Um, um, Google doesn't like the fact that I have two accounts, and so if I'm gonna look at some like you sent me something on Google Drive, um, yes. it does not like the account that I sign into everything else with. So it signed me out. So <laughs> I'm gonna sign in with the account that it likes. There we go and hit present. So there's always, you know, like I said, the choice <laughs> of figuring out the internet connections, but we've got it now. No problem. All right. And then just get the presentation. There we go. Perfect. Cool. Awesome. Um, so as the name states, I want to talk a little bit about the owner's role in hoof rehab, uh, meaning what can you as the owner do to help your horse uh, succeed in rehabbing the soundness um, and before we even start, I actually chose this picture that's shown here um, for a specific reason. Um, this horse that's in that picture where, with the, the shoe on the top picture, yep, he was actually one. set for euthanasia. He had a, an appointment to be put down um, due to chronic long-term lameness. And a client of mine actually offered to take him in um, because she was for, you know, whatever reason, so confident that we could fix him, um, just by looking at his feet, uh, that she offered to take him. Um, and before, you know, she was a long-term client of mine. She was actually one of the first owners that I ever worked with. Um, and she, uh, before I even met the horse already did a bunch of the things that we're going to talk about today. Um, in, you know, changing his diet, making sure he had a good environment, having, you know, boots and pads ready for him to, to be comfortable in once we pull the shoes. Um, and, you know, with incorporating those things, I think it made the process of rehab uh, a lot easier. And I, I absolutely don't think that we would have been successful without her incorporating those things. And he actually came back to soundness and was able to be a, a working trail horse, um, taught some little kids how to do walk, trot, canter, small cross rails. Um, so he's definitely a cool success story that I don't attribute to myself at all. I think that was, uh, all the owner, all the new owner who, um, did that. So we can actually go to the next slide. Okay. Let's see. I have to figure out how there's gotta be an easier way for me to go to the next slide. Hey, do you press, can you press yeah. the arrow? Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm used to Google, so that's the, the tricky part, but I'll get there. <laughs> um, so as we said when we were talking a little earlier, I obviously wasn't always a hoof care professional. Um, I knew nothing about hooves or soundness when my gelding was diagnosed with a navicular. Um, and I was given the prognosis of, you know, keep them comfortable until it degenerates too much and then you just have to put them down or eventually, um, or, or retire him or eventually put him down. And I am stubborn and I didn't like that answer. Um, but I found that navigating the diagnosis with my vet and my farriers was pretty difficult. You know, everybody has their own idea on which direction to go. And I was relying on them to fix my horse, basically. Um, I was assuming that my farrier is going to come in and do whatever he needs to do to, to get the horse sound. And I just had to watch. 
Um, but I realized that the professionals I was working with, they aren't seeing the horse every day. Like they weren't seeing my horse, um, in going through the ups and downs that I saw every single day. And I realized that what I did was going to play a huge role in his comfort and his rehab to get him as sound as possible. So, um, that's when I started learning more about ways that I could influence the rehab process. So obviously, <laughs> disclaimer, I'm not guaranteeing any step-by-step -step process. Um, I'm not saying that I have like a, you know, a 12-step program to success. <laughs> but I do really believe that the success rate in rehab is strongly influenced by the owner. And even more so now as a hoof care provider, there are times when I want to tell owners, you know, if, if we can't incorporate these changes, you could, you can fail with somebody else. You know, like I just, it's not gonna, it's not gonna be successful. Um, you know, but I think this is really important because so many owners kind of feel at the mercy of their equine professionals and, and are unaware or uncertain in many instances about what they can do. Um, and, you know, in the past, we, horse people were more engaged with their horses all the time. You know, horses were more part of our lives. And then, of course, they moved away to where we live in homes and they live in barns. But I think we're starting to realize now that we really need that interaction. We really need to be our horse's advocate and to, right. and to take on that role of being part of the process, not observing the process. Right. And I truly believe horse owners know their horses better than anybody else. You know, they see yeah. them all the time. They know what's normal for them and what's not. They know how they react to different things. Sorry, my dog has decided that right now is the time that she needs my attention. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> we have um, lots of animals cruise through webinars. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I really think that owners don't give themselves enough credit in, in knowing their own horse and knowing what's working, what isn't. So um, we can go to the next slide. And this one, I admit, will be a, a lengthy slide for sure. Um, so one of my favorite quotes is from Dr. Thomas Teske, the healthiest hooves are attached to the healthiest animals. And I really believe that. Um, you know, that saying of you are what you eat, I think that absolutely relates to, to horse hooves as well. Um, and I can talk about this topic for a really long time, so I'm going to try to be as concise as possible. But I truly believe that nutrition is like a crux um, of so many rehab cases and their success. Uh, and I think it can make or break rehab um, if you don't have a diet that supports the soundness of the horse. So I am going to spend a bit of time talking about nutrition. So um, Pete Ramey is someone that I've learned a lot from. He is a farrier down in Georgia who also focuses on barefoot rehab with composite glue-on shoes. Um, a phrase that he uses often is that feet are like a canary in the coal mine. So they're going to give us, you know, feet are going to give us warning signs long before we see any kind of, you know, catastrophic failure to the horse's soundness or movement. And once we start paying attention to these signs that they're showing us, we can, you know, mitigate issues before they actually become a lasting problem. So one thing, one big thing I think feet tell us are nutritional issues that are causing hoof inflammation, even if the horse isn't outright lame. Uh, so whenever I go meet a new horse, the first thing I always look for are, you know, event lines on the hoof. You can see in this picture, the lower half of that hoof definitely has some event lines there, the ripples. Um, and I also check the depth 
of the collateral grooves, which are those grooves that are next to the frog. Um, they can, so the, the event lines can give an indication of inflammation in the lamina, little insults that are causing, you know, some low grade inflammation in there. Um, and the collateral grooves are really good to be able to tell the sole depth of the horse and how well the hoof is suspending that coffin bone inside of it. Um, so I'm probably going to sound a little crazy, but unless you already know me, you, you've probably heard this before. Um, I don't put a lot of weight on genetics in terms of hoof quality. Um, I think that you know, issues with sole depth, issues with sensitivity, um, hoof wall quality issues are all symptoms of a bigger problem. And I don't, you know, I don't just say, oh, that horse has genetically bad feet. Oh, it's an off the track thoroughbred. They have bad feet. I, I don't think that's necessarily true. Um, I've seen plenty of horses that people might attribute to having poor quality feet get really nice feet with a good diet. So um, I think they're, you know, obviously there are genetic issues that might play a role, but not as much as we, we would think. So before I have, um, before I do anything with any horses that I see, I always talk to the owners about diet. Um, I seek to get all the horses I see on a forage based diet, which means I do ask owners to feed, uh, less or no processed feed or grain. Um, during hoof rehab, I basically treat horses like a laminitic. <laughs> Even if they're not laminitic, I, I feed them as if they're, they need to be fed as a laminitic horse. Um, this can really rule out a lot of lamina inflammation as a cause for hoof, hoof sensitivity or um, issues in their growth um, or, you know, being ouchy over various surfaces. So I really try to have all the feed that a horse eats be less than 4% starch um, and less than 10% of ESC, so ethanol-soluble carbs, which is basically sugar um, and starch combined. So that's a little different than NSC. It's a little more specific. Um, I follow the ECIR way of feeding horses, um, which is Dr. Kellen's Equine Cushing's and Insulin Resistance Group. And she goes by ESC and starch. And usually now um, a lot of products will list a separate starch and a separate, separate ESC on their label. So you can check both of those. And that also mean, it also might mean testing hay um, in, for really sensitive horses. If I come to a horse that's laminitic, I, I usually recommend owners um, test hay. Um, and really testing hay and balancing minerals to it is the best thing you can do, but I know it's not feasible in a lot of boarding situations. Um, so, uh, I, should I answer this question that just popped up? Sure. Um, yeah. So fructans, um, so Chris Pollitt is a vet, um, and professor out in Australia and he, uh, talks a bit about fructans and how he, um, he did a, a study with inulin where he actually injected or uh, uh, tubed in inulin into these horses to say um, that if they ate so much amount of fructin, you can make them laminitic. So the only thing is, is that the, and I hope I'm not totally botching this study because I don't have it pulled up. Um, the amount that he fed was a crazy high amount that a horse would never usually eat day to day. And it wasn't even a form of fructin that horses would naturally have access to. So, um, fructin being a sugar, a form of sugar, right? Like fructose found in, found in fruit. Um, so, uh, 
Dr. Kellen, so there's no other studies that actually link fructans to laminitis. Um, Dr. Kellen has a lot of uh, discussions on that. Yeah, right. Fructose and fructin aren't, aren't the same thing. Um, but uh, the difference then? What's the difference? They're two different kinds of carbs, and I actually don't know the actual difference. Okay. Um, so fructan, so, you know, to me, fructan sounds like fructose, therefore I assumed it was a similar sugar, but it's different. <laughs> yeah, they're different. Okay. Um, so uh, there are different, you know, thoughts or camps on this. Uh, there are some people who are very, you know, uh, diehard into keeping fructans low or, or going by NSC, going by the WSC and, and hay and making sure that's low enough. Um, Dr. Kellen in her database has over 20 years of um, case histories with, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of horses. And they've found that the horses that they see um, just going by a low ESC and starch um, has horses controlled for uh, laminitic rehab. Um, oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, sorry, I'm reading these. If people wonder why I pause, I'm, I'm just reading these questions that pop up. Um, so I, I'm sure others can expand on that more, but um, I've seen really good success with just going by ESC and starch. Um, granted, most of the hay tests I've seen in my area, in New England, um, and really a lot of the worldwide tests I've seen haven't been overly high in WSC, water-soluble carbs, um, but even so, I haven't, I haven't had issues with the horses that I've seen feeding them less than 4% starch and less than 10% ESC and starch, um, personally. And I, I do work on a good amount of actual, um, long-term chronic foundered horses. Um, so, and they've been, been able to be managed, um, with just looking at ESC and starch. So sorry, that was a little bit of a, uh, <laughs> side note there. That's okay. Um, so for a carrier, instead of, you know, if you're taking grain out of their diet, but you still want to um, feed minerals, obviously. Um, a lot of minerals come in powder form. So, um, uh, sorry, someone just asked about ESC. So ESC is ethanol soluble carbs, it's sugar. Um, and less than 4%, I look for starch um, to be less than 4%. And ESC plus starch to be less than 10%. Um, and that's, you know, it can be pretty strict. Um, but if you're really in early stages of hoof rehab and your horse has a lameness issue, I am, I'm pretty strict on that because I see the best success rate that way. So um, basically you have the owner have their hay tested to find out what the ESD and the, uh, is in the hay and then do something about that. So, uh, a lot of the owners I see actually can't test their hay. I'd probably say about a quarter of the owner owners I see can test their hay. Uh, luckily in my area, um, I see enough hay tests that, uh, in my area, I cannot, absolutely cannot guarantee this for other areas. Um, I know a lot of the, uh, hay guys and they'll cut in the morning when sugar is low. I've seen a lot of hay tests where, um, the ESC, the sugars are actually less than 1% and the starch. I, I don't think I've ever seen starch in any hay near me less than 4%. So I'm usually pretty confident with the clients that I see that um, their hay is okay. And if a horse is having a laminitic issue and the owner can't test hay, then I usually tell them to soak it. So soaking it will lower the sugar levels. It won't lower starch levels, 
but it can lower sugar levels, um, which is helpful if, if the horse is having an issue with the sugars in the hay, but even, even products like grain, um, even some like pelleted supplements or even some forage based feeds will, I mean, they should list their ESC and starch right on the package. So a grain can have like, you know, uh, something like 11% starch and 9% sugar, um, or ESC. And that just wouldn't be safe to feed in any amount to, um, well, laminitic, but really I tell owners, I don't think that's safe for our, the beginning of our rehab, if we really want to see the best results possible. Um, so instead I'll have owners use something like a Timothy grass pellet, um, well for easy keepers, um, Timothy balance cubes from triple crown are actually pretty good. Um, speedy beat. And I like the speedy beat, um, it's a, a UK product and I think it's processed a little better than some of the other beet pulp products. So that's a beet pulp. Yeah. And there's a lot of problems with the GMO beet pulp um, that you have to be careful of. I'm probably, I wonder yeah. if UK wanted it, better. And I'm 99% sure someone can correct me on this, that Speedy Beet is non-GMO. Yeah. Um, it's hard to find non-GMO in the U.S. Yeah, it is a UK product and, and it's, you know, especially for easy keepers, it's, it's cost effective because you don't have to feed a ton. Um, for easy keepers, I actually just have owners feed just enough of the carrier so that they can get the horse to eat the minerals that I want them to eat. Um, and one thing a lot of people will ask me is about uh, alfalfa, and this is a little bit of a hot topic, but I, I personally will have owners not feed alfalfa in the beginning of rehab, especially. Um, I've seen way too many horses that even, I swear, even a few bites of alfalfa um, causes foot sensitivity that resolves the second they remove the alfalfa. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I don't have them feed that. It is low in ESC and starch, but it's a legume. It's not a grass. Right. Um, and I do have a, a podcast episode um, talking about alfalfa and why it might cause hoof issues if people are, are interested. Um, and for harder keepers, I always have owners increase hay. If they're getting free choice hay and you know, other things incorporated like ground flaxseed or cool stance copra or more speedy beet, um, or even in some cases like a little bit of triple crown senior gold, which is um, low in sugar and starch, a little higher in fat. Um, I, uh, if they still aren't, you know, holding their weight, I'll have owners test hay because if hay is low in protein or low in, um, you know, digestible energy or calories, then nothing we're going to give them is going to meet their nutritional you know, calorie needs for the day and they're going to have a hard time holding weight. So the, the calorie content in the, um, protein in the hay can really affect a hard keeper. Mm -hmm. Um, but otherwise usually a fully forage based diet is, is fantastic for 90% of the horses I see. And I did see that some questions pop up and I didn't, Let's I see. didn't catch them in time. That's okay. We can, I can just come back and take a look at it. Um, one was about is non-GMO and I, she has a bag in her living room <laughs> as well as Timothy Pellet. That's really good to know because the GMO that, that can really throw things off. Um, yeah. And, uh, so you don't recommend alfalfa as cubes or pellets, correct? I don't personally, or alfalfa hay um, in the beginning of hoof rehab. There are, okay. I want to preface or, um, do a little, uh, you know, caveat of there are lots of horses who do great on alfalfa and I'm not on like an anti-alfalfa, um, <laughs> you know, mission, but, uh, at least in the beginning of hoof rehab until you can, you can test to see if a horse is, is comfortable on alfalfa. 
um, I have owners remove it just to make sure that's not halting progress. Um, I've, I know this sounds crazy, but I've seen feet uh, clear up thrush, have tighter white lines and less sensitivity um, just from removing alfalfa from the diet. Uh, but again, there are lots of horses that do really well on it. It's just, if we know that there's hoof issues, I want to kind of do an elimination diet to start to make exactly. sure that. I mean, that's what we do with people, right? If you have an allergy to something, you do an elimination and then test, right. test back later yeah. <laughs> after you get things under control. Yeah. Right. Um, so this horse that's pictured, um, with the crazy foot, um, he went from eating grain as, uh, the main source for all, all his, well, grain and hay as the main source of all his nutrients to a fully forage based diet of just a few months prior to me taking that picture, um, when I met him and you can actually see that top half of growth. It's just so much tighter to that. You know, if you're looking at the coronary band where the hairline is, it looks so much tighter to that coronary band. And then all of a sudden halfway down it flares out like a bell, um, where it starts to flare out, that's his old foot growing out. So we can't change anything about that. Um, it has to grow out. It has to grow down, but you can see where he has the event lines and it's just so much more flared his angles. You know, he had these terrible underrun heels and this huge flared foot that I'm hoping by the time that new growth hits the ground, he's going to have this nice, tight, comfortable foot with, um, better sole depth. So, um, uh, you know, we talked about vitamins and minerals like super briefly. And the best thing I would say to do is if you can test your hay, if you have a reliable hay source, or if you buy hay in, in quantities where it makes sense to test it and, and make a custom supplement to that, that is the best thing you can do. Cause you know what the hay is providing in terms of nutrients. And then you can just meet the deficiencies with a supplement and it's going to save you money that way. Um, I was never able to do that in a boarding situation. We got a new delivery of hay like once or, you know, once a week or twice a month. Um, and it didn't make sense for me to spend $30 every week just to have to then only feed supplements for a few days and have to change it. Um, but there are tons of, or not tons, there's a good, uh, yes, I, I, I do love, um, the Rockley diet. I see that Allison just mentioned that. Um, there are a handful of really good supplements that are a good um, kind of safety net that can cover a lot of the deficiencies that are seen in, you know, common hay tests for different regions. Um, and I, just before anyone asks, I don't know if anyone will, but uh, I don't like Farrier's formula. I don't like any of those generic hoof supplements. If it's labeled a hoof supplement, I probably don't like it. <laughs> um, but you know, one main issue that we see without getting too much into the sciencey side of things is that hay tests around the world and water um, can be really high in iron. And for the average size horse, the NRC daily recommended amount of iron um, for like an, a thousand pound horse would be around, I think, 400 milligrams a day. And at least in my area, I have not seen a hay test that provides less than a thousand milligrams a day if you're feeding for two percent of body weight in hay um which might not seem like an issue like more is better you know right um except that iron has been linked we, you know correlation doesn't equal causation but there's some link between iron and metabolic issues and iron and laminitis and iron itself competes for absorption with copper and zinc and um, some other, you know, necessary minerals. So 
you know, the hoof needs copper and zinc to be healthy. And if the body is instead is just absorbing iron, it's causing all these, you know, issues in the body from not getting the minerals it's supposed to, um, which we then see in the feet. Is that so, something you can test the horse for the iron levels? You can, um, you can't, so there's only one, um, lab in the United States. I don't know about other countries that actually does an accurate test. Um, it's the uh, Kansas state university you can do a KSU iron panel where they test serum iron, ferritin and TIBC. Um, and you can do, Dr. Kellen has some mathematics that you can do. Um, hair analysis. I don't recommend. I know someone just commented that I, um, hair analysis, even Dr. Kellen doesn't recommend it. It's not accurate for, um, I mean, different hair on different areas of the body will have different results taken at different times a day has had different results. And you know, it's, it's going to be in the past anyway, um, because it's whatever's growing out. Um, and so I, I don't personally recommend hair analysis, um, for that. So the KSU iron panel, it, uh, Dr. Callen has some math that you can do to figure out if they're iron overloaded, but even if the horse isn't iron overloaded, um, you know, clinically the, uh, the balancing the iron has done huge uh, things in terms of rehabbing feet that I see. So I can pretty much guarantee that any grain bag or any most supplements that you can pick up at a, at a store will have added iron on the back and, and that can just sabotage your hoof rehab goals. So if, if it has, you know, Oh, it provides a hundred milligrams of iron and a hundred milligrams of zinc. Well, you just canceled out whatever zinc you're trying to feed. So, um, you know, there are a few supplements that I like in the States. You would just have to choose one. I'm not like a brand Nazi. Um, you know, Vermont blend is really good for my area. California trace plus is a good one. Mad barn makes one called amino trace plus, which is also available in Canada. Um, Arizona Copper Complete, Lone Star Trace, Colorado Mix. There's a lot of really good options now. Um, and most of these are, were formulated with specific regions in mind based on average hay tests. But they're pretty much safe for anywhere. The only thing you really need to worry about is selenium levels um, and manganese in some cases. Like my area is really high in manganese, which I wouldn't then supplement manganese um, because it can actually uh, increase iron absorption, which is not what we want. Um, in the UK, I saw Allison had mentioned it, but Progressive Earth Pro Hoof is one that I like. Um, Forage Plus also makes a lot of really cool balancers in the UK. Um, and in Australia, and I'm, I think, I assume New Zealand as well, you can get um, Carol Layton's mixes. Um, so, you know, I, obviously there's lots of countries that I left out. Um, I do. Let me see if I can just kind of recap this is basically different regions of the world in the country have different levels of minerals. And so a lot of horses could be overloaded in one and lacking in another. And what we basically have to do is balance out that mineral profile so that we, we, we have to counter the high iron. Is that what you're saying by making sure we supplement with something that's going to, uh, um, sort of, balance out the iron. In other words, you can't remove the iron, but you can supplement with copper and zinc. So that, is that what you're saying? Right. So, I mean, there's other minerals that we, we take into account, but the biggest ones are, um, for the hoof that I like to see are iron, um, copper and zinc, a ratio of, of, you know, this is a really tight ratio, but a ratio of four, one, three. So iron, um, 
copper zinc would be four, one to three. And, uh, usually that means supplementing no iron and then bumping up your copper and zinc. So that gets to that ratio. Um, I've seen added magnesium be a huge, uh, you know, uh, impact in, in hoof sensitivity and nerve. In, and in a good way. Sorry, what? In a good way. Yes. Yeah. In a really good way. Um, I think Nick Barker in, in your, uh, webinar with her talked a lot about magnesium as being kind of the, the key to success in a lot of her, her rehab cases. Um, and it's usually pretty safe to supplement orally. Um, the first symptom of too much, uh, magnesium is loose poop. So if your horse has any kind of manure issues, you can back off. Um, and somebody asked about remission. Um, remission to me is a really expensive magnesium supplement. I mean, you can get magnesium for pennies a month if you buy it in bulk and remission. I mean, it's not super expensive. I think it's like $10 a month, but, uh, the other products, uh, the other, um, minerals in it aren't super, you know, helpful in the ratios that they're, they have in that supplement. Um, but the magnesium can be bought for so much cheaper. Um, so remission isn't awful. It's just, you know, more expensive than you probably need to spend. Okay. So you've, you've mentioned a lot of ratios and, and, um, for, for the person who's not necessarily mathematically minded, how, what, what is like the, for like a simple, easy step that they can take in terms of starting to address this issue of the nutrition and balancing out the minerals? Like, yeah. So I usually just say cut out grains, start with a forage based carrier and, um, and supplement one of these base supplements. So you don't have to do any math. Um, okay. Yeah. And I also recommend vitamin E for every horse, even if the horse is on grass and you say they're getting vitamin E, I recommend it as a, as a, you know, a little safety. Um, somebody particularly true in your colder climates where like we, we have grass that looks like spring here right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, somebody had mentioned magnesium citrate versus, uh, oxide. Um, actually Dr. Kellen has done some, uh, you know, preliminary research that oxide is much more absorbed in horses than it is in people. So anybody who's using like another form of magnesium because they think it's more absorbed or going by human studies and oxide is actually very well absorbed in, or fairly well absorbed in horses. There's a, um, what's it called? An article by Forage Plus on different forms of magnesium and what's absorbed the best. And they actually said oxide is cheap and it's absorbed pretty yep. well. So they choose that over chloride or citrate or glycinate or the other, or, or malate, you know, the other forms. Um, and I've seen pretty good success with magnesium oxide. That's actually what um, uh, Rockley Farm feeds like a calcinized magnesite, which is, you know, a form of you know, magnesium oxide. So um, I don't, don't worry too much about the other forms they're a lot more expensive usually too. So I usually start with the less expensive first. I like to save people money. That's great. Uh, um, there's some questions in the Q and A that I can't get to cause I'm sharing my screen right now. Maybe you can click on the, Q &A. Um, I think I've been answering questions as they come up. Okay. I'm just checking. Cause I can see the chat. I just can't see the Q and A questions and they haven't gone away. So oh, I don't know. Uh, um, well, hang on. I'll just stop share for a second. Check them out. <laughs> uh, um, so yeah, Brandy, people are just asking if you can uh, repeat some of the names of supplements. And just remember, you can go back and watch this webinar on the Surefoot Equine YouTube channel. So it's not like it disappears at the end. But yeah. Um, so some of my favorite ones, um, Vermont Blend, California Trace Plus, 
Um, Mad Barn has Amino Trace Plus, which is also available in Canada. And there's, I don't know of any other options in Canada. So if anybody else does, I'm always looking for more that are good. Um, Arizona Copper Complete uh, Lone Star Trace, which was formulated for Texas um, and is really high in vitamin E. Um, Colorado Mix um, are just some. And they're, you know, they all have free shipping across the country that I've seen. Um, and most of them, I would say average between 25 to $50 a month. Um, I feed one that's $30 a month, but I don't, don't feed any grain and, uh, it's pretty, um, encompassing and, and matches the hay tests for my area. So I find $30 a month to be totally reasonable. Okay. So we have a question if there's enough magnesium oxide in the Vermont blend. Uh, so Vermont blend, I think has six grams um, and obviously it does depend on your hay test and your individual horse. I've fed, um, I really want to be careful cause I don't want people to, to do anything that's harmful, but, um, I personally have fed up to 20 grams of magnesium as needed for my own horse. Um, and you know, usually I feed it to, to bowel tolerance. Um, and obviously in, uh, cases of long-term magnesium supplementation, you might want to check your hay test just to make sure the magnesium and calcium and phosphorus ratios are pretty good. Um, but I, you know, Nick Barker has said it too, and she's been doing this a lot longer than I have, that she hasn't seen any detrimental effects of magnesium supplementation. I just want to be really careful that I'm not going to, yeah. you know, cause anybody issues, but, um, um and then then a good start. question about, um, some magnesium supplements say low iron formula. Does this mean we should go for that option? Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you, it's a little more expensive. I know that mybesthorse.com has one that's really low in iron. Uh, there are some, if you open up a bag of magnesium oxide that's sold by like the 50 pound bag and it's red, I probably would look for a different option. The kind that I, I feed is almost like a, well, I guess sand might be a different color depending on your yard, but it's like a brownish tannish sand color. Um, but I have had people open up a bag. It was like a reddish pink, like a darker pink and they sent it out to be tested and it was really high in iron. Um, I mean, it's, it's going to be minimal, probably the amount of milligrams it adds per day. Like the hay is going to be way uh, supplying way more iron than your, you know, magnesium, but you know, just to be safe, it's the same reason I tell people to not feed, um, Himalayan salt, which is pink. It's, it's not going to give you a ton of iron a day, but it's just not needed. And you can feed plain white salt and, um, it's saves you money and meets the needs of the horse. So there's another question. Um, there's another veterinarian who advocates straight soybean meal as an amino acid source. Uh, and she's just saying thoughts and, understand if you don't want to step into that. Um, yeah, I, I haven't, I do know who that vet is. I actually have some clients that, that use that vet, um, as a dentist. Um, I, I haven't really explored that as much. I will say I do have some horses that I see that are sensitive to soy and become foot sore on soy. So I, I think, think that the GMO problem with most soy. I mean, it's yeah. So I think it's, it's definitely something you want to watch for. If you're not seeing the hoof results that you want, um, I would start picking apart everything you're feeding and if it's, you know, species appropriate. Okay. So we're going to take two more questions and we're going to go on with your presentation. Cause otherwise we'll I know the diet with part was supposed to be a small part, but <laughs> um, somebody's asking about iron and speedy beat. 
There is, yes. So um, basically everything we feed, Timothy pellets, Timothy cubes, Speedy Beet flax, it's all going to have some iron in it, um, which is not added. It's just intrinsic iron. If you soak the Speedy Beet, oh, sorry, rinse the Speedy Beet, soak it, and then rinse it again, it brings the iron down to basically nothing. Um, and that's usually what ECIR recommends to do for feeding. But if you're feeding like, you know, a half a cup of speedy beet to get the minerals in the amount of mag the amount of iron that's going to be um given through that speedy beet is is you know maybe you'll add 10 milligrams of iron from the speedy beet but if you're getting a thousand milligrams a day from the hay it's kind of like okay it's a little inconsequential in the grand scheme of things but you can rinse soak rinse and it does does take care of a lot of the of a lot of the iron and then there's just a question about natural versus synthetic vitamin e yeah, I, I personally like natural vitamin E. If you feed synthetic, you have to feed something like a third, like 33% more to get the same amount of, um, absorption I use. Um, I feed, uh, I try, I really like, um, there's a water soluble E called M cell, which is very cost effective. It's a liquid. So, and it has to be added right before you feed. So a lot of boarding situations, um, might not be ideal. They might not feed it that way. Um, but that is a water soluble, um, natural E and water soluble just means it doesn't need a fat to be absorbed. So if you're feeding a vitamin E supplement and you don't have any fat in the diet, the horse probably isn't utilizing that vitamin E unless you're feeding a water soluble source of vitamin E. That might be, I'm getting in way deeper than I meant to. In I terms know, of I'm good. I'm good. We're, we're <laughs> going to go back to the slideshow because I like, people are still asking questions, but I said I was only going to take two more. So we're going back. And people can, if you, you know, there's a, I was going to mention this at the end. There's a um, Facebook group that I help admin called Equine Nutrition Group. You can feel free to join there and ask questions. Um, there's another really great group, um, uh, Hoof Care and Rehabilitation that, that I help admin. So um, any lingering questions, if you want to ask them there. We try to, you know, check those a few times a day. Okay. All right. So going back to the slideshow. We'll try to fly through some of these so they're not like <laughs> going too long. Oh, and I might have to let somebody out in a second, but we'll see. Okay. Um, <laughs> So other factors obviously can affect uh, hoof health, like stress, which stress also leads to gut issues, which affects absorption of minerals. So to me, it all comes back to nutrition. Um, movement affects uh, uh, hoof issues. So this horse pictured, um, I started, I met him just over a year ago, September 2019, and he came from a more stressful situation. Um, his new owner, um, who was a client of mine, uh, you know, gained ownership of him. He had those event lines, toe cracks and all four feet. So she changed his diet, um, put him out 24 seven in a herd and his, he just, his whole demeanor changed really, but his feet, um, just grew in so much healthier and he's so much more comfortable. And I didn't do anything special with his trim. So when I say that the owner plays a huge role, I really do think that the owner plays a really a much bigger role than what my trim does. Um, you know, I try to say to make the horse's life as species appropriate as possible. So, um, you know, moving, uh, socializing and, you know, forage available. Um, and really we're going to talk a lot about movement. Um, I'm seeing, clients that seem to have a 
um, roadblock in hoof rehab, I'm seeing that movement plays a huge role, like proper movement um, throughout the day. Uh, it can really affect how their feet grow in. I mean, just like with us, if we're not using our muscles and using our body, it'll atrophy the hoof. If they're not using that hoof, it's going to atrophy. So we can go on to the next slide. So this um, thrush is a, a personal um, enemy of mine. <laughs> um, so something that owners can really help with is treating thrush and learning to recognize thrush so that you don't have to wait until your farrier or hoof care provider comes to point it out. Um, the pictures that you see are actually of uh, one of my really good friend's um, horses. He is a chronic Lyme case that foundered um, and uh, was shod for many years. Um, I, I pulled his shoes. You can see on that top left picture, he had that little split in between his heel bulbs in the middle of his frog. We call that a central sulcus infection. Um, and then the picture on the right was just a cycle or two later after treatment. And actually the bottom picture was his other front foot. So he had this central sulcus infection in both front feet. Um, so I have a whole podcast episode devoted to thrush and what, it, what it's caused by and ways to influence it and ways to treat it. So I won't get too deep into it. Um, you can listen to that in the podcast, but I see thrush come from um, nutritional issues like too much sugar and mineral imbalance, meaning the body is not strong enough to fight off those pathogens and microbes, um, and environmental issues, and not so much like a wet, a muddy paddock. A lot of people think, oh, it rained and the paddock's muddy and now my horse has thrush. If a horse is on a good diet, I'm going to keep saying diet, um, I don't see thrush pop up even in um, muddy paddocks. What I will see is if a horse is in a stall a lot in like pea soaked shavings or like standing in its own manure all day long, I do see that really affecting the frog. Um, so for environment, I'm talking more like nasty, uh, you know, uh, manure or, or pea that they're standing in and not mud necessarily. Um, and one thing I really want to hit drive home is that thrush, does not have to be some black gunk that has a smell. If I see a frog with a split in it like that, or if the frog has anything more than a thumbprint in the, the middle at the back there in the central sulcus, I'll have owners treat until that is nice and open and the frog is, um, is no longer deep there. So even if it doesn't smell, even if it doesn't seem like there's an issue, I'll have owners treat it. Um, so thrush itself can actually lead to lameness. Um, it can cause toe first landings, poor movement, um, which actually toe first landings can cause soft tissue damage from improper biomechanics, which can lead to bone damage. So you can have a lot of issues that come up with something as innocent as thrush. So I'm pretty, I'm, I'm a big stickler on it with owners. Um, so I've actually seen horses that will nerve block sound to, um, a, a heel block. Like if you have the vet come out to do, to find out where your lameness issue is coming from, they'll, their nerve block sound to a, a palm or digital nerve block in the back half of the foot. And so the vet will say the horse has a navicular diagnosis that all of a sudden the horse came up sound once the thrush was gone. So, you know, I'm pretty, pretty, um, 
I'm, I'm pretty strict about thrush. And somebody just asked what I treat with, so we can go to the next slide because we'll talk about thrush uh, treatments. So I, um, I've used a lot of different products and I'm sure there are a million out there that do well. I keep these three products, the, red, the three Red Horse products on the top there um, in my car at all times. And I actually, I do sell them to owners too. Um, so I, I haven't used Life Data Clay. Somebody just asked about that. Um, so for really deep infections, like the ones you saw on the previous slide, I like hoof stuff. It's basically a cotton, it's cotton fibers with honey and zinc oxide. So it's super, you know, benign in terms of, you know, it's not going to cause any issue or, or stinging. It shouldn't sting, but it's really, really effective and stays in really well. Um, I also like their Artemut or Field Paste, and I find both of those are pretty effective, and it's really what the owner feels most comfortable using. Um, the Field Paste is a little thinner and stickier than the Artemud. The Artemud is more like a thicker clay. Um, and if owners don't have access to Red Horse products, um, I tell them if they have any diaper cream, like Desitin, it has to be 40% zinc oxide, so the maximum strength. It's actually really pretty good. All of the Red Horse products have the 40% zinc oxide in it, which I think is really the secret ingredient. Um, so those are kind of my, my hacks for treating thrush. Uh, if I notice that the foot is really weak and there's, you know, white line issues, any thought of abscessing or the thrush is really, really just insidious in there, um, I will have the owner do like a clean track soak or white lightning um, or oxygen AH. Um, someone mentioned adding copper sulfate to desitin. You can. Copper sulfate is very effective. Um, I'm very careful with copper sulfate because it is a carcinogen. Um, so I just am, I, I don't use it often. Right, uh, and I don't use desitin to stop any horses chewing on wood because it'll stop them cold better than anything else. Oh, I didn't, oh, I yeah. didn't know that. I used to have a horse that would, I mean, you just put desitin, it looks ugly cause it's white, but it'll stop them cold. Yeah. They don't like yeah. it. <laughs> um, and I've seen thrush cleared up with just the desitin. So I haven't felt the need to add the copper sulfate. Um, I, I do add I will sometimes add copper sulfate under gluons or something where I know I'm not going to be touching that foot for weeks and weeks. Um, but it's, it's pretty strong stuff. Um, I know that Pete Ramey loves it and I know that it's used very, very commonly in the farrier world. Um, I'm probably just more cautious than others. Um, and you can see this picture here on the left. That's my gelding's foot. That's my Mustang gelding's foot. Um, that is what I would say is a healthy frog. So those heel bulbs are nice and wide. It's like a heart. Um, they're not, the, the top of the heel bulbs aren't touching. There's no split. Um, there's no little holes in his frog. And that frog is actually, if you look at the widest part of the foot, that frog is just a little, it's, you know, almost as wide as the widest part of his foot. It's a, it's a fully functioning weight bearing frog. Um, so that's what I kind of strive for as much as I can. Uh, horses that have long-term contraction in their feet sometimes have the inner structures remodeled to that contraction, which can mean that their foot won't open up that much. But I've seen some feet open up a lot just from treating the thrush and getting them moving better. So we can go to the next slide. When I go to the next slide, I'm going to let Buster out because he's otherwise going to continue to annoy. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> Um, so one thing I'll ask owners to do, uh, obviously if they're not in any kind of gluon package, um, is check the feet often. So, uh, especially in cases of laminitis, I'll have owners 
feeling the feet and checking for this digital pulse. So this picture here is from Paige Poss's website, Anatomy of the Equine. Um, it's not my photo, but I, I credited her there. Um, you can feel a digital pulse right above the fetlock. Uh, and remember, a horse's pulse is slower than ours. So if you don't feel anything, it doesn't mean they don't have a bounding pulse. I usually like to hold my hand there for a while in case to make sure I didn't miss a heartbeat. <laughs> um, if I don't feel anything there, um, I'll go down to above the coronary band um, and see if I can feel anything closer to the hoof. Um, somebody asked about if their feet are colder. Um, you know, so I do think that every horse, and I could be wrong about this, has a different normal for how warm their feet are. Um, I'm in, I live in New England and it gets really cold in the winter and feet will feel warm in the winter just because the air is so cold that the horse is alive. So it has some, you know, it has blood flow in the feet and they feel warm. Um, that's just because the, their feet are warmer than the air. Um, but I've had, I've seen horses who, you know, if they're standing in the snow all day, their feet are cold. Um, so I, you know, Dr. Balker talks a bit about circulation and how shoes affect that or how um, standing on different surfaces affect circulation. Um, so that's something you can watch some of his, his webinars or, or videos about. Um, let's see what I was. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, um, you know, I have owners check for heat in, in Digital Pulse often and learn what's normal for your horse. So if you know that you can feel a very faint di Digital Pulse all the time and your horse is sound, then I wouldn't worry about it too much. I worry about the bounding pulse that feels like throbbing um, in those cases. If you normally can't feel anything and you feel something, you might want to talk to your vet or farrier or hoof care provider. Um, and also don't freak out if you feel a digital pulse after your horse has been running around because that's normal. If your horse has been trotting around outside or chasing a buddy, um, they're going to have a pulse in their feet. Um, if they've been standing in the sun, their feet can feel pretty warm and, or at least in, in cases that I've seen. Um, so it really, you have to think about, have they been in turnout? Have they been moving a lot? Have they been in the sun or the shade to really know what's normal and, and tell what's you know, good or bad for your own horse. And I do have owners pick out the feet often. Um, I always say that dirt plugs are, can be really good. They can provide sole support and um, stimulation to that frog and help um, generate tissue and strengthen the frog. But muck plugs like manure and, and pee and other junk are really bad and very detrimental. So when in doubt, I just have owners pick it. If, if you don't know what's under all that muck in the foot, I have them pick it out um, just to make sure nothing bad is going on in there. Um, I don't know if Wendy's back, but we can actually go to I'm the back. Next. Oh yeah, we can go to the next slide. Yep. Um, so the most of the rest of this webinar is going to talk about movement and how to watch your horse's movement. And I'll try to make this um, not super drawn out, but it is, it's important. Uh, so one catchphrase from Nick Barker, um, who has Rockley Farm Rehab, is movement isn't bad, but improper movement is bad. So, you know, think about physical therapy. When you injure yourself, like say you have a, a soft tissue strain of your own and you need to do physical therapy for it, they're not telling you not to move. They're teaching you to move in a way that's going to be healing to that injury and correct the cause of the injury. So, 
when we um, see horses with improper biomechanics, that can lead to stress to the soft tissue and cause repetitive strain type injuries. So this, you know, horses that are constantly landing toe first, for example, they're jamming up that soft tissue and causing soft tissue strain. And unless you correct that movement, then it's going to keep re-injuring um, and you're not going to have success. So, um, Toe first landings, like we, I think we mentioned this very briefly, um, can come from discomfort from a whole bunch of things. It can come from thrush. So if you have thrush that's not treated, the horse isn't going to want to land on its heel and it'll land toe first. And that something as simple as thrush can lead to a much more serious issue. Um, but toe first landings can also come from dietary issues. Like if they're having inflammation in their hoof from, you know, high levels of sugar and starch, they're going to, you know, mate in a lot of cases, they might, you know, shorten their stride because they're sore. They're scared to really fully bear weight on their feet and land toe first. Um, trim issues can cause toe first landings um, or of course, internal pathology. So if they have, um, they already have some kind of soft tissue injury in their foot or bone damage, they might be more predisposed to land toe first. Although I have seen that corrected um, just with more comfort. Um, so heel first landings, think of that as like the physical therapy for the foot. So heel first landings are what's going to bring healing to that soft tissue and strengthen the shock absorber in the back of the foot, which is the frog and the digital cushion. Um, when that's really strong, sometimes horses can forget the pathology they have. So even if they have, you know, navicular bone damage, if they have a strong enough digital cushion to support their navicular bone, Sometimes those horses can come back to full soundness without maintenance. I'm not saying that's in every case, but I've seen it happen enough times where I, you know, I think that the key to really getting these horses comfortable is making sure that back half of the foot is really strong. And Dr. Bowker talks a lot about that too. And that's um, where the can be really helpful in helping horses reprogram their habitual patterns as well. Right. Um, so, you know, uh, heel first landings. I, I'm going to get a tiny bit technical, but just to explain where I'm coming from, um, heel first landings allow proper full extension of the tendons up the back of the limb. So the deep digital flexor tendon and the superficial digital flexor tendon, um, these, uh, tendons are at full extension when the horse lands heel first, and that helps to stabilize the foot on impact with the ground. And this disperses the energy properly throughout the limb. So instead of landing in a way where the, you know, the soft tissue and the bones and the joints aren't ready for that impact and that concussion, um, heel first landings allow for uh, a way to disperse that, that concussion and that um, energy through the limb. So it can minimize the effects of concussion um, on those joints and soft tissue. Um, and it also, you know, just from that proper movement allows proper perfusion and circulation throughout the foot. And we know that circulation is, is what brings red blood cells and healing to different areas. Um, and I already, uh, yeah. So one last thing I wanted to say about landing. Sorry, I'm looking at my notes. Um, so if a horse is toe first, I tell owners that you should not force movement. So meaning, sorry, you should not force exercise. So if your horse is toe first, you know, you're filming in slow motion, closer to the ground, um, and you notice your horse is landing toe first, if you're forcing it to exercise, you're forcing it to move in ways that's damaging to its soft tissue and its joints. 
And ultimately that's going to lead to pathology instead of heal it. So um, we can go on to the, the next slide to talk a little or show some more examples of landings before we talk about how to get a heel first landing. <laughs> so these are two examples from my own archives. Um, the horse on the left, I was called in to uh, do a consult for, and you can see that he's landing toe first, um, which is, you know, I tried to freeze frame the video right before the point of impact um, and try to get it as close to the point of impact as possible. The horse on the right is my own gelding, my Mustang gelding, and um, I couldn't get it quite right when his foot hit the ground, but I can assure you he lands heel first on both fronts. Um, and one thing I want to mention really quick is there are uh, pathological, like unhealthy heel first landings, and you'll see that in laminitic or foundered horses, and it's usually pretty obvious meaning the whole, the horse is very stiff and it's moving very stiffly through its shoulder. And before they land heel first, they almost like hover and are scared to, for, for the impact, but they're trying to land to avoid their toe. So there's sometimes super exaggerated heel first, but it's, it looks painful. It doesn't look comfortable. Um, and so you should, you know, it, it should be pretty obvious if it's a pathological heel first landing, but you can probably ask your, your vet or farrier or hoof care provider to check. Well, everybody pretty much has a, has a video camera in their pocket these days that right. like my iPhone does slow motion so easily. And, and you can do that on your own walking your horse down the barn aisle. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's just a question of kind of figuring out the technique, but it doesn't matter if you do it bad because you can just do it again. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Um, so pigeon-toed horses, uh, that's horses that, you know, have an angular limb deformity where their, their, their feet are that's turned in. Um, I absolutely can have pigeon-toed horses landing heel first and medialaterally balanced. I know that they, well, it really depends on their conformation up the limb and where the deviation started. Um, but a lot of horses that toe in, I'll see them land laterally first. Um, and you can't always correct that depending on how, uh, depending on the degree of uh, deviation in the conformation, um, but I have seen horses with angular limb deformities end up landing comfortably heel first and balanced. And actually, if you go to the next slide, we can talk a little bit about uh, medial lateral landings. And somebody actually had emailed a question about this. Um, so another thing to check for um, is if they're landing on in front feet, if they're landing on both heels at the same time, um, and hind feet, this is something that Nick Barker taught me, hind feet will have to land just due to the anatomy of the horse, um, will have to land outside first, laterally first. Um, but if you're filming your horse from the front, um, you can watch to, in slow motion to see how their heels are landing. Um, obviously the horse is toe first, you're not gonna be able to tell as much. Um, but ideally, uh, you, those heels are landing at the same time and um, Someone, so sorry, uh, if they're landing one side a lot harder than the other, this can lead to soft tissue issues. So um, someone sent in a question about trim decisions based on that. And uh, it's not, so this isn't really an owner, um, owner, you know, Webinar. responsible, something the owner would be responsible for. Um, but I'm really careful adjusting my trim based on their landings because you can absolutely force a horse to land heel first with your trim or force a horse to land flat, like medialaterally balanced with your trim and lame them because their structures are not strong enough to handle that landing yet. 
So if your horse is landing toe first and you force them to land on a weak, force them to land heel first, where their heel is weak and their structures inside that are weak, um, you're going to make them really sore. So I don't like to give trim advice without seeing the horse in person. Um, but for most horses, uh, Pete Ramey has a really good balance article and he talks about angular limb deformities like pigeon toed horses. Um, and you know, a lot of horses that I see the first time I see them, if I see they're really wearing down that outside heel and the inside hoof is really overgrown and flared because they're not wearing it because they're landing laterally first, for example, um, you know, Pete would balance that foot by not touching that outside and just, you know, uh, taking down that inside so that it, it, um, matches the wear to the outside. Um, this, you know, might be great for one horse and I've seen horses do really well with that. Um, some horses might need that flare to compensate for an injury or pathology in the limb, um, or their confirmation. So it's really, really dependent on the horse. So I'm, I'm really hesitant to give trim advice. I think it's fair to say that if you have a horse with limb deformities, it's really best left to a professional that recognize, because it's so easy to make a change, but it may not be the change the horse needs. Right. And, you know, I had a horse that was incredibly pigeon toed and she was totally could do her job for many, many years. And we made sure we didn't interfere with her, her ability to do her job. Right. Which, you know, it, and so I think that, like you say, that's kind of a question left to the professional working with that individual because it's such an individual thing. Right. Exactly. Um, so what, like I do with the, with filming to see if they're landing heel first, I'll film from the front to check how their progress is in medial lateral balance landings. Um, and you can also use slow motion video in conjunction with, um, what we call zero degree DP rad. So dorsal Palmer. So from the front, um, showing the balance of the, the limb from the front of the foot. Um, and, you know, so I, I like to have that if I'm going to change anything in my trim, but I always go by the comfort of the horse and using slow motion video is really helpful for that. And you might have a really weird looking foot that serves the horse really well. And if you try to make that foot look perfect, that horse is really lame. So, you know, definitely go by the comfort of the horse. Nick had a great uh, illustration in the webinar we did with her of a foot that one might look at and go, oh, but the horse was sound. And you know, right. so I met that horse in person. Oh, did you? Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. It's, and that's the thing is, um, you know, there's certain things that, you know, there's a reason why they're there. And, and what I like about this talk is that it's what we can do, but there are things that, you know, again, it's very individual. Right. The horse, the horse knows best for sure. Yes. In <laughs> um, just a quick comment. So these two pictures were from uh, this past week when I was at a friend's farm. Um, we did a little clinic where we filmed horses movement and then took x-rays um, or the vet took x-rays um, to see if what we were seeing in their movement matched what we were seeing on the x-ray. Um, and you can see this horse on the left. It's, it, I couldn't get it to freeze. She's actually very heel first. It looks like she's landing flat, but she lands really balanced medialaterally. The horse on the right lands hard laterally. So I don't know if you are on the outside. I don't know if you can tell that his or her, sorry, a whole foot is tipped to the outside and that image on the right. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely clear. Um, awesome. So we can go to the next screen. Okay. So how to achieve comfortable landings? You know, it's going to be different for, 
for different horses, but things that I always start with is diet. Um, you know, making sure that diet is really good. Um, and using, um, boots and pads and treating for thrush. Those are like the three, like these need to happen if I'm going to pull shoes and this horse is uncomfortable and toe first. Um, so this is actually screenshots from a video of a horse I met recently. Um, and she has a really bad navicular diagnosis and has a uh, bone loss of the coffin bone due to chronic low-grade laminitis um, and thin soles and a lot of issues going on, soft tissue damage. Um, so I, these images that I took are minutes apart. And the only thing that changed was I put a pair of boots on. And I didn't touch her feet, didn't trim her. Um, so this shows that the comfort, the heel first landing was just coming from her comfort. She was then comfortable enough to land heel first, just from that, those boots and pads. That's a, a cloud boot from easy care. I love them. Um, if you're going to be, you know, pulling shoes or, or attempting rehab, they're really, really good. And I use them for 24 seven turnout. I try to get them owners to take them off for an hour or so a day. Um, not all horses need them on 24 seven. If I have like a laminitis case or a founder case, they, they most certainly usually do. Um, so, you know, obviously slow motion video is really helpful. Uh, if you, if you're going to film, use the slow motion feature on your phone. Don't film at normal speed and then slow it down because the actual amount of frames that your phone is filming, um, is dependent on the speed that you're filming at. So if you have a regular speed video and slow it down, your whatever uh, software you're using to slow it down will actually fill in the images based on kind of like what they think should be there. It won't be as accurate as if, if you're actually filming in slow motion. Yeah. And I like to film on a flat surface that's not uphill or downhill because uphill will force a horse to land toe first because they're trying to, you know, get traction. Downhill will force a horse to land heel first. Um, and if you're filming on an uneven ground, it can really affect how they're moving as well. So I try to film at the walk to start cause it isolates every single leg, um, and how each leg is landing cause it each lands on its own, you know, one at a time, um, in slow motion. So we can go to the next slide. Um, so this, uh, image is showing a stretch. Um, another way that I, I think really helps with heel first landing, we get heel first landings, um, is through body work. And I am the first to admit, I know way too little about body work and I fully, you know, I'll tell owners, I think you, this horse should have body work, but don't ask me about it. Cause you know, ask your body worker. Um, but one thing I'll always teach owners to do is this forward stretch here. Um, it's, if you're doing it, um, you want to be really careful not to ever force it because forcing it can be very, um, not great <laughs> for their tendons and soft tissue. Um, so I ask the horse to gently give me their leg in their own range of motion. I don't force it. Um, and if the horse really likes that forward stretch, they'll sometimes lean into it and like do like a catch stretch. Um, and, but a lot of horses that I see are really unwilling to do this at first because they've been landing toe first for so long and they don't even know how to fully extend their, their limb anymore. Um, and over time I see them loosen up, you know, get a better range of motion through that shoulder and through that limb. Um, yeah. So and I we think had a lot of webinars, uh, on body work and Raquel Butler, Dr. Raquel Butler did one on stretches and stuff. So there's, there's a lot of good resources on body work and stretches. 
Yeah. Um, so we can go to the next slide. Uh, so something I mentioned earlier, I think movement plays a much bigger role than I even give it credit for. Um, you know, Nick Barker has that rehab facility where she has a track system, which is basically like, um, you know, instead of having a big open paddock, it's paths for turnout where the, the horses, when they're in a herd, um, the pressure, you know, that they feel from that narrower space is forcing them to move more. A lot of people obviously can't build a track system. So um, I'll tell owners, you know, space out their, their hay stations or space out their hay from their water. So they have to walk from one area to the other. Um, something I didn't, I didn't add in this webinar, but I wanted to bring up is that a lot of times I'll even tell owners to add some pea gravel by the water. So every time they go to drink water, they're moving over a varied surface and pea gravel is very comfortable for them if it's like four inches deep. Um, and you know, that's going to stimulate their frog, stimulate their soul. Um, and just allow that, that foot to get the, the stimulation it needs to get help to grow healthier. And it's amazing how little you need to do to interrupt a, a, a field to get them to move more. I just put up a, after Nick, one of Nick's webinars, I put up some pigtails with some electric fence. And instead of the horses standing in the shed all day long, they're out moving. And yeah. It was really not complicated. And it really didn't block off any of the field. It just changed where they go. Right. Yeah. And so, um, Dr. Andrew Van Epps, who I've had on the podcast before, um, he's really, he's done a lot of studies of perfusion, which is, you know, circulation in the hoof capsule. And he has found through repeated studies that circulation improves with, or it's, it's actually circulation comes from cyclic loading, which basically means the horse picking up and putting down its foot. And how do they pick up and put down their foot? They're, you know, they're walking. So, you know, if, if they're, the more they're moving, the better the circulation is in the hoof capsule. And that's going to really affect not only their, their growth, but just, you know, again, like those red blood cells bringing, you know, coming in and allowing things to heal in that hoof capsule. Yep. And it doesn't have to be, um, you know, some people think they have to make such an elaborate system to get the horses to move, but it, it, when, what I've discovered, it really isn't that difficult. You just have to kind of create a couple of little roadblocks. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. So we can go to the next slide. Um, so this is something that I touched about, touched on a little bit earlier, is that I care more about the horse's comfort than the appearance of the hoof. Um, so in an attempt to make the hoof look correct right away, um, it's actually possible for us to cause discomfort and actually cause lameness when we're trying to fix lameness. Um, so I always allow the horse to have the final say in whatever I do. So I try to watch the horse move before I work on it and after I work on it. Um, obviously we want to be making progress and see the foot looking healthier, but um, I really care more about if my horses are comfortable after a trim uh, or whatever I do than if their foot looks correct. Um, Stephen Lee is a hoof care provider in the UK who's awesome. And he was on a podcast of mine a few weeks ago. And he said something like, I love seeing a perfect hoof, but I love seeing a sound horse an awful lot more. Um, you know, he talked about how the hoof isn't a block of wood that we can just carve to look however we want. The hoof is a living structure. So, you know, it's going to respond to whatever we do to it. And I think that we should, we do better to respect what it wants um, and what the horse wants than forcing our, our ideals on it. 
Um, yeah, so we can go to the next slide. Um, so these are some, you know, pictures that I have of, of me working with my local vet who's awesome. Um, and these are, you know, both rehab cases. So uh, something that's really, really going to impact the success of your horse's rehab is building a team um, that's going to be, you know, actually communicating, working together well. So the first thing I tell owners, um, I kind of go through like a little bit of an interview process. I kind of make it hard for them to want to hire me. I'm going to, you know, I tell them I'm going to ask you to change things. And, you know, it's not just me coming in and working on the feet and leaving. Um, so find professionals that you can trust and that you agree with in terms of your belief system. You know, if you want your horse to be in a therapeutic shoe package and ridden tomorrow, you know, you're, you want them to, uh, be able to be in work full time while we're trying to rehab an issue, then I'm not going to be somebody that's going to work well with you because I'm probably going to ask you to give your horse some time off and, uh, you know, grow in a, a better hoof capsule and see how they're moving with more, with a better angle growth. Um, so that would just be a constant battle if, you know, we have different ideas of what we want for the horse. So find someone that jives with your belief system, um, and somebody that you feel like you can talk to and that you can trust and that you, you believe is actually helping your horse. Because if you feel like you have to tell your hoof care provider or your vet what to do, um, it's probably not going to be fun or pleasant for anyone and the horse will suffer. <laughs> um, so that being said, if you have people that you're working with that you really trust, don't be scared to ask questions. You know, we want, or, you know, me as a professional, I want to help my owners understand what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And, you know, the decisions behind the choices that I make, um, I, you know, ask us to show you things, uh, you know, tell us if you see a change in your horse's soundness, don't be scared to text me if the day after a trim, you know, your horse is uncomfortable. That's feedback that we need because that's telling us what the horse feels about what we're doing. Um, so in the middle of a cycle, let your hoof care provider know if you notice something that's not great. Or if you notice something great, like your horse is moving really comfortably, let them know. We like hearing those updates. Um, something I'll never say no to is radiographs. Uh, I love working with the vet to get x-rays. Both of these pictures are from when I was with the vet to get x-rays on a case. Um, so this helps to determine if there's more internal pathology or issues that might need extra help and attention. It can also help us track progress like soul depth or better angles. Um, it can affect what we choose to do in terms of boots or if we're doing glue-ons. Um, the horse in the top picture uh, is a client of mine. Um, he was uh, you know, 14 years old, uh, diagnosed with a navicular type issue, soft tissue damage, some ring bone. Um, and we had, uh, accomplished a pretty healthy foot. Like his foot was actually, um, growing in pretty well and he was back in work, but certain days, uh, he would randomly come up ouchy or like sore or a little bit off. And I was not satisfied with the, oh, it's just the ring bone or, oh, it's just the navicular. I was like, no, his foot, his hoof capsule is healthy. Um, I want to know why he's having sometimes where he feels great and sometimes not. Um, we actually, I had the, I asked the vet who probably thought I was insane. Um, if we could test for PPID and he was really high for PPID, which is Cushing's. 
Um, and once he went on Cushing's medication, all of that lameness issues in between cycle went away. He's back in full work, full dressage work, barefoot. Um, he's rocking it. He's, he's got a much better top line now. Um, he's much happier. And, you know, I think that if you're not seeing the kind of progress that you'd expect, then don't be scared to test, you know, get blood work done. Um, and the last thing I'd say I really request of owners is to trust us on cycle length. If we're saying we really want to see your horse in X amount of weeks, don't say like, oh, can we make it a little longer? Or like, oh, I don't think they need that then. Because often we're trying to keep the balance of the hoof. We're not just, you know, worried about the length of the hoof, but really the balance and how the horse interacts with the ground. Um, and obviously there are cases, you know, I do have some horses that almost self-trim. Um, and, you know, that's individual to the horse. But if your hoof care provider is telling you to keep a certain cycle, then I would definitely do that. Um, so we can go to the next slide. Uh, so I rehab my horse while boarding. So I know that boarding your horse is tough when it comes to rehab. So I'll be the first to say that some boarding situations are just not conducive to hoof rehab. Um, so you want to be, if you know, you're going to go on to, to rehab your horse, you should talk to your barn manager, um, and those that care for your horse, ask them if they're willing to add the supplements ask them if they're willing to stop feeding grain and troubleshoot with you what will you know get your horse to eat your supplements um you know if your horse especially is grass sensitive see if there's options for non-grass turnout if needed um really think about if your horse is able to get enough movement where they are um if you really if you you and your health care provider really feel that movement is going to bring their feet to the next level of health um you know, talk to your barn manager if they're, they'll be willing to keep you updated on changes in your horse's comfort. So, you know, really not all, all barns are going to be able to do that. So, um, it's really something that you have to think about and talk about with, with the people that are caring for your horse if you're boarding. And sometimes, you know, having a horse that needs a different care is a great opportunity to find a barn that's more aligned with your values. Right. Exactly. And there are those out there. I mean, I, I, when my horse was diagnosed with navicular, I had to move him to a different barn because it was like I was hitting a wall. Every time I talked to my barn manager about ways that I, I really wanted to change some things for him, it was just, you know, they couldn't do it. That's just the way things were done and no hard feelings. I just moved him somewhere else. It was a different, different ideology. And um, I don't blame them for that. I just had to find a situation that worked for him. Right. It's just an opportunity. It's not a, not the, um, somebody just asked a question about, um, the, the horse had a diagnosis and now she's scared to push him. In other words, uh, his sound and he's been sound for a while and she's scared to push him based on the diagnosis from 2018. Two years. Um, so that's really, you know, horse specific. If your horse is landing well, like movement is going to play a huge role, biomechanics. If your horse is landing well, I would treat them as if it was a horse coming back into work from any time off. So that means like, you know, start with five minutes a day at the walk, then go up, you know, bring them up it's X amount of minutes per day. And then once you've re reached a certain amount of minutes per day at the walk, introduce the trot for X amount of time. And then once they're, they're up to, you know, half an hour of walk and trot and you know, you, you're going to do it systematically. And the second you notice any kind of, um, setback, then you have to go back and reevaluate. Um, 
you know, but Nick not going there leaves you stuck. In other words, you know, you've got to be able to be willing to go a little above the line and come back and see what happened. Right. Um, Nick Barker's first book, Feet First, um, she in the back of the book has a bunch of uh, case studies of different horses. And she talks about how she brought them all back into work. Um, and, you know, start, you know, it's going to be different depending on the pathology. I will say that ECIR recommends for laminitic horses um, that you should wait until a full new hoof capsule has hit the ground before you ride them again. So that's like nine months. Um, and I think a lot of people, once their horse is sound after laminitis, they just start riding and, and, you know, ECIR says you should really wait till that better lamina connection really hits the ground. Um, so, but you know, otherwise for other issues, uh, I would just treat it individual to the horse and go by their setbacks. And, and, you know, a lot of times if they're moving well and you do it really sequentially, it's, it, they can go from strength to strength. So. Uh, just never, if you never go there, they can't improve. I mean, right. it's such a, it's such a um, I talk about that a lot about flirting with the line where we have to go a little above and find out it's okay. Right. So you won't get trapped. Anyway, yeah. next. We just have one more slide. So the, oh, someone just asked a question. Um, uh, so for, for navicular, um, if you're, you, I assume that you already follow Rockley Farm, but uh, yeah, once the navicular damage is there, I mean, it, it'll likely be there for the rest of the horse's life. But like I said, if you're building up that digital cushion, like Dr. Bowker says, um, sometimes they can almost forget they have that pathology and they, you know, some horses that have awful navicular x-rays, you know, tons of deterioration, degeneration, um, are sound and in full work and you know, they, they don't have any setbacks. Um, actually, I think one of the best things you can do is once you get a horse to a point where they're in full work and, and going strong is to keep that level of fitness because once they have time off, then things can atrophy and you have to build that back up all over again. Um, and it gives, you know, it's they can have more of an issue of re-injury. Oh, Bowker. Uh, I'm spelling it now. Um, Dr. Bowker, it's Robert Bowker. Um, and he, we've done um, uh, three webinars with Dr. Bowker. They're all on the Surefoot Equine YouTube channel. They're all two hours long, just mm -hmm. so that you're prepared. And we've actually taken the audio and pulled it off and made um, podcasts out of it, which you can find um, at Podbean, when, Wendy's Winnie's at Podbean. So if you want to just listen to them, you can find them there. I'll just put that in the chat screen. Um, so this last slide uh, is something that probably you'd think would be obvious, but it's not <laughs> so obvious, is that you have to have patience. Um, you know, I, I know a lot of us want to see our horses sound immediately, but it took time for those hooves to become unhealthy and it's going to take time for them to return to health so you know a, a hoof capsule depending on how much they're moving because obviously that affects circulation and perfusion it can take up to you know nine months or more for them to grow out an entire new hoof capsule and sometimes it can take that amount of time for you to see really positive changes um, so you know in the meantime while you're waiting i encourage owners to take lots of pictures um, take lots of slow motion video to track progress. And that way you can see the little, you know, incremental, uh, improvements, or you can see if something happened where you have a setback, you can know right away, um, just from tracking with those pictures. So this mare in this picture, um, I met her 
uh, in late 2018, um, I think the end of December 2018. And this owner, basically all she did was she changed the horse's diet and made the horse move more. <laughs> and she went from being sore and ouchy, you can actually see in that left picture, the bruising on the sole where it's actually pink instead of white. Um, she had poor hoof quality that was chipping all the time. And um, she was really like sensitive on different surfaces. So now the, the picture on the right, she's comfortable over all terrain. She has a healthier frog. Her soles don't bruise anymore. She's not ouchy. Um, but this, you know, it took time. Um, so for encouragement along the way, uh, oh, movement versus via turnout. So this mare um, was, did get more turnout in her, in the situation that we're talking about, but the owner actually, she was landing well. And so I told the owner to ride her. Um, she was landing well and comfortable in the arena and on, you know, surfaces that were soft. So I said, you know, movement's going to be your best friend, ride your horse. You know, she's, she's sound on softer surfaces. Um, and that I think made a big difference. So I know it's really hard and it can feel really isolating when you have a lame horse because I was there. So I will say that, um, you know, I, I mentioned a few Facebook groups, but one that um, I, I think can be really helpful is Hoof Care and Rehabilitation is a Facebook group. Um, we we kind of follow more of a Pete Ramey style of rehab, but it's just nice to have others in the group that are going through similar things. And, you know, you can post pictures, videos, um, ask questions for, for help in, in troubleshooting your horse's soundness issues. Um, and really, you know, involve, you know, build some friends around you that have been through something similar that can kind of help you along the way and make sure that your hoof care provider and your professional team are a part of that, you know, talk to them. If we're in this job, I mean, I know that part of my job is handholding. Like I know, I knew that coming into it. I went through it too with my own horse you know, we're here to encourage you and help you and, and we care about your horses. So we want to hear what's going on. Um, and one last thing I, you know, I have had, uh, I think I, I'm at episode 28 or 29 of my podcast. I've had some really cool guests talk about soundness and rehab. Um, so if you look up the humble hoof podcast, you can kind of scroll through, um, and, and pick a topic that you think relates to your horse and listen to it. Um, just to arm yourself with more knowledge. And uh, that's basically it. Yeah. But it's awesome. And, and we also have, like I've interviewed uh, Daisy Bicking, Ida Hammer, Bob Bowker, now you, and we just keep adding other hoof care professionals to this webinar collection. So there's a lot of information available for people out there. And I think that's one of the things that's so different now than, um, I'm a little older than you. <laughs> <laughs> that we didn't have the ability to connect and talk to people around the world and, and find solutions. And that's one of the things that's really, really changed. And I think it's empowering a lot of people to be willing to actually even pick up a rasp and think about keeping that trim a little balanced, you know, after their, their health uh, hoof care provider has shown them what to do so that, you know, it's, it's, it's not sort of, um, I've been doing my own horse now for years just because of the circumstances I wound up in, but um you know, the more we learn and the more we educate ourselves, then the better it is for everybody, including our horses. Yeah. And one last thing I want to say is that no one person has all the answers and no one approach is going to help every single horse. So, you know, I, I 
truly believe that people know their own horses best and talk to other people. Like there are people that I've had in my podcast and I'm sure there'll be more people that I've had in my podcast that don't do things the way I, the same way I do. Um, and that doesn't mean that we don't, that we care any less about horses um, or want to see them, you know, we all want to see them sound. We all want to see them comfortable. We all want to help horses. So um, that might look different for, for different situations. Yep. Um, there's a couple other questions here. Uh, we, we've done a webinar on, on uh, therapeutic nutrition. We've had Nick Barker. Um, so you can find that webinar. We've done two with her. It sounds like um, Alicia's really a big fan. She's known Nick, which is great. Um, so that one's available. Let's see, re-movement. I've read that it needs to be more than just daily turnout, especially for IR horses. So what are your thoughts on that? Uh, yes. Um, so I think that's where, you know, doing something like a track system or the separate hay and water stations allows them to move more, um, you know, 24 seven turnout where it's an option. Um, in terms of metabolic horses, it's exercise, um, is part of the ECIR protocol. It's diagnosis, diet, trim, and exercise. Those are their, their order of operations basically. Um, and exercise can only happen when the horse is comfortable enough to do so. So if you have a metabolic horse that is sound at the moment, yes, the more exercise, the better, because that's going to really influence insulin levels and keep that horse more comfortable. Um, yeah. So, you know, that would be I'm riding and walking my horse. Cause I need the exercise too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> um, so a couple other questions. Is there iron in Red Rock, Redmond's Rock? I think it's Redmond Salt. Yes. Um, there was one, one product, and I'm blanking on the name. It's their gut one that was like, oh, like 900 ppm of iron. Um, and that I think can, I, I don't, yeah, I don't recommend it. I don't even know another way to say it in a better, <laughs> like more politically correct way. But yeah, I don't. I don't recommend that. Is it product. safe to use Artemud um, after doing white lightning soaks? Uh, I, I actually never really thought about that. I have done it right after doing a white lightning soak and didn't really think much of it. So hopefully if some, if I'm doing that wrong, somebody else can correct me. Uh, Amy Chapman, I'm not sure. Could you please post her name? Uh oh, I'm not sure who her is at this point. Um, if it's Nick Barker, <laughs> maybe it's Nick Barker. Hopefully that's the right answer. Dr. Kellen is the only, I'm trying to think of the other females I mentioned. You know, it's like, um, anyway, you can uh, maybe go back and watch the webinar again. Um, and this one, I, I maybe you understand this. I absolutely cannot find Feet First anywhere. Um, the book Feet First by Nick Barker. I've gotten it, or when I got it, I got it on Amazon. Yes, um, actually I got it on Amazon too. And it comes from the UK. So you just have to be patient. Yeah. Um, but if, you know, if you can't get it, if you go to Nick's website, Rockley Farm, um, I don't even know if it's rockleyfarm.com, but if you uh, contact them, they, I'm sure that they have it for, for, uh, it's probably where it comes from when they ship it, because mine came from the UK. Um, yeah. And do you need to get blood work on your horse along with hay analysis? My horse is suspect metabolic. Um, I will always suggest blood work if you think your horse is metabolic, because that's the only way to get a true diagnosis. Um, and you can have things in the blood work that are sabotaging all of your rehab efforts, like the high ACTH from Cushing's or high refractory insulin that isn't responding to diet. So I would always recommend blood work if you suspect metabolic issues. Yeah. 
All right. Well, I think we've gotten through all the questions. There's been a lot of questions on this one. It's great. <laughs> and this has been fabulous. I mean, it's, um, it's, it, you know, in, in so many ways, what you've done is you've taken information from a lot of people and really made it usable for someone because we've had Nick, we've had Bob. I haven't had Pete Ramey yet. I'm going to have to see if I can have him come on. He's the show. great. Um, but, you know, that's the thing is the, I think sometimes we all need to hear these things like what I'm hearing again for me is, okay, I really got to go out and look at my feed. Like I've been, I'm on a fiber diet, not me, <laughs> you know, he's a hay diet and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, maybe it's time that I really, and I, after Nick, I've been supplementing with uh, magnesium and salt, but I think I need to go back and look at that balance again. And that's what I keep hearing from you. So it's been really great because sometimes we need to hear it more than once before it really clues in and yeah, that's what we need to do. Yeah, definitely. And these are things I need to remind myself of too. So, <laughs> oh, well, absolutely. I can't, you know, like I have friends and they're holistic and they get a, they do something. I'm like, have you taken Arnica? And they go, Oh, I completely forgot. You know, yeah. so sometimes we need someone to remind us. Um, so somebody just posted it's rockleyfarm.co.uk. Um, and Nick's fabulous. We've had her twice. It was really fun. Allison, I want to thank you so much for being my guest today. Um, Thanks you know, for having me. Really fabulous and great information for people. Um, and it's just been a really pleasure to meet you because, you know, I've uh, obviously haven't met you in person yet. So maybe with someday <laughs> that'll happen. Yeah, definitely. I know if we ever can go to Aquine Affair again, I'll, I'll stop by your booth. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I maybe some, some year. Um, but anyway, in the meantime, we have the webinars. And just remember, you can find this in all of the other 122 now. Uh, webinars with Wendy on the Surefoot Equine YouTube channel. They're there. They're free. You can listen to them. We're making podcasts out of the ones that make sense to just have audio. Um, and that's what you can find on Podbean, Wendy's Winnie's. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Alicia, for being my guest. And um, I, we don't have one tomorrow. It's election day. Please go vote. <laughs> All right. Thanks All right. again. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye.